RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. and welcome to another episode of RNMD. I'm not going to do the whole intro because actually Dan is on this episode and he did the intro and it's just better when he does it, let's be honest. Um, I wanted to come on quickly before this episode and say that this is the last episode with Dan actually. Um, He is done with residency. Congratulations to Dan. He's going to be working in an office in New York and we wish him just the very best. Um, but I think starting out in his new practice, it's a lot to ask of him to continue to record and be involved in the editing and the process that is um, kind of long sometimes for some of these episodes with the research and everything that goes into it. Um, so we wish Dan the very best. We're very excited for him. Um, and congratulations on your new position. We are going to be, well, I am going to be looking for a new co-host now. So um I am looking for someone who obviously is a good public speaker and most importantly has four to six hours a month to dedicate um, to podcasting. Um, I do the editing myself. I do the promos myself, et cetera. I usually book the guests myself. Um, But the whole point is RNMD, right? I really painted myself into a box with this idea (laughs) because I have to have a co-host. So... If anyone listening knows someone or that they themselves would like to, please email me at rnmdpodcast at gmail.com or uh, you can message me on our Instagram page, rnmdpodcast. I would really love to keep this project going. Um, and if if I'm not able to find a consistent co-host, I might have to change the structure of it because... Um, I don't want to have these gaps in recording that I've had, right? Um, I took a month off. I apologize for that with my foot. That's a little bit of it too. Um, But I'd like to get this to where it's a little bit more well-oiled. July will be the first year anniversary of the podcast. And by then I would like to have this be kind of... um, smoother process and something more consistent that you guys can rely on and you understand the structure and the format. Um, and that includes having guests, but also having consistent hosting, right? Um, where it's not just one week we have, it's, it's just me. My fear is if it's just me, this is going to turn into me interviewing doctors podcasts, which there's a lot of those. And actually there's you know, like the Black Doctors podcast, for example, which is, uh, you know, doing even a better job than interviewing doctors than I would do. Um, and that's not the point. It isn't just to interview doctors for, for this project. It's to collaborate um, and to talk about some of the issues that we all have and that we all face and the similarities and the problems that we are having and how can we kind of band together. So, um I would like to have a (laughs) co-host. So if you know anyone, give me a call. Okay, I'm going to stop talking your ear off. Today, our guest is Kaylee Dayton. She is a ICU nurse practitioner. She is in a very unique type of ICU called a wake and walking ICU where they do not, well, they try not to sedate and paralyze their intubated patients. They get them up and walking. Check out her Instagram page walking home from the ICU. She also has a critical care podcast. She has a blog and I'm going to be linking some of the research she provided for this episode in the episode show notes in case you want to check it out. Okay, without further ado, here we go. Hello everyone. Welcome to RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Daniel, your doctor host. And I'm Abby, your nurse host. And let's get the show on the road. Ooh. Ooh. 
if you wouldn't mind just starting by introducing yourself and like your background, whatever you're comfortable sharing. I'm Kaylee Dayton. I'm an ICU nurse practitioner. Uh, I guess the premise of my where I come from is I started my career as a nurse in an ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah. That is what I call my podcast, the Awake and Walking ICU. So I was a pretty new nurse. I come into this ICU. It's my first introduction to critical care and everyone is awake on the ventilator. Everyone's up and walking. And I spent years working there thinking that that was normal. I had heard that things were done different elsewhere, I, but it didn't make any sense to me until I became a travel nurse and I started working around the country. And immediately I was like, what is going on? The <laughs> lights are dim. Everyone's a zombie. And I would ask questions just trying to follow my own instinct. Hey, can I get this patient awake and, and can we get them up and move them? And they would look at me like I was crazy. Doctors, nurses, they would treat me like I wasn't really an ICU nurse. Like I didn't really know that this patient was critically ill. And um, they'd say things like, boy, you're going to fall in with an intubation cart. And I'm like, no, I'm just not going to pull the tube out. <laughs> so um, throughout my travels, I started realizing that our perspectives and our practices are really influenced by what we're exposed to and how we're trained. And so then I came back to Salt Lake. I went to grad school. And again, none of this was discussed. I was in an acute care adult gerontology program and no mention of sedition and mobility practices, let alone the long-term outcomes of what we do in the ICU. Um, but I did learn how to read research. And so I started doing a lot of digging and I went back to do my residency in the wake and walk in ICU and just felt more comfortable practicing that way. So I stayed there for the following few years. Um, but I kept thinking as I would see all these incredible outcomes that this should be the standard of care. And then I would discuss with people online and um, colleagues in different parts of the country, um, there was such a difference in perspective. And I kept thinking, we sedate and immobilize patients because we don't know what it's like for survivors. So I started interviewing survivors on the podcast to try to get the true story. What happens to them after they've spent weeks in a medically induced coma? What are their lives like? And it's been extremely enlightening for me and hopefully for those that have followed the podcast. But I just really feel like what we do in the ICU um, is usually because we don't have the big picture. Could you give me some examples, some of the stories? What What is somebody who has been sedated for weeks and on these heavy drips, what, what do they say they experience after that? So I'll quote Susan East. She's in my third episode. Um, she has had ARDS three times. Wow. Which is, yeah, crazy. So the first time she got the classic treatment. So she was deeply sedated, immobilized. The whole time she was in a medically induced coma, she was watching babies burn among many horrific things like that. And the first time I ever heard a survivor talk about this, he talked about trees falling on him and his arms were pinned to the ground. And I'm like, that sounds like a bad nightmare. That's really rough. But as I started talking to these survivors and hearing Susan East, it wasn't a bad nightmare. It was real. She describes it as more real than the reality that she was experiencing in that moment. And so she woke up thinking that all these things had really happened, that she was still in that scenario and she was delirious. And it was this awful process of coming out of delirium, which we we've seen, right? You get a patient out of sedation and they're trying to get out of bed. They're trying to pull their tube out. You can see the terror in their face. But once you talk to survivors and you realize Susan thought she was watching babies burn. Is there anything more haunting than that? One other guy talked about, um, he thought his children were kidnapped the whole time. And so throughout those weeks, he was in the scenario of trying to save his daughters and he was being shot, but the pain was real. And he thinks that that's when he got a chest tube, when he got a central line placed, like everything he heard and experienced tied into this terrible scenario of thinking his children were being kidnapped. And when he saw his children, um, once he was out of his coma, he sobbed and they had no idea why he was sobbing. But to him, he was just relieved to see that they were okay. And it took, it takes them months, even years to reconcile and to psychologically accept that that wasn't real, if that makes any sense. So Susan, her first time went through this and then she wakes up and she can barely lift a finger. She's so weak and deconditioned. 
um, barely is able to wean off the ventilator. Then she goes to rehabilitation or to an LTAC and she's just basically left there to rot. Um, and she is, she's a shaker and a mover. She's a go-getter. And she's, so she called her physical therapy friend and she said, please get me home. Help me rehabilitate at home. I'm not doing anything here and I've got a life to live. I swear I'm going to die here. So, um, they basically scooped her up, took her home and she rehabilitated at home. And she was so disturbed by that whole experience that she went to an attorney. As soon as she was well enough, she was in her attorney's office, having documents drafted, protecting her from sedation again. So on her own accord, not knowing that there was another way to practice, she just assumed if I'm ever on a ventilator, do not make me watch burned babies. So next time she got ARDS, the family said, Hey, she's, she's got this order this legal document protecting her from sedation. She does not want to be sedated. She said her experience was totally different. And I have pictures of her sitting there texting on her phone. Um, I don't know how aggressively she was mobilized, but she was demanding like writing to have physical therapy come in and move her. She got off the ventilator faster. She didn't have the horrific delirium. And then same thing with a third, third time around. And so she says, I'm not afraid of ventilators. I'm not afraid of ARDS. I'm afraid of sedation. Sedation is what terrifies me. And so those are the kind of people that are giving the true insight that we would have no idea of from the ICU side, right? I think we culturally have this understanding or this assumption that patients are as comfortable as they look. So if they are not moving, if their sheets are tucked in and we have music playing in the background, then they are as peaceful as they look. But that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about how this program was started and who were the people um, behind this concept? Because yeah. I've never heard of this before. I'm not an ICU physician, but every ICU that I've been to, I've, I've only seen, you know, standard protocol, you know, yeah. sedation and an intubated patient, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the premise of that being that um, that is for their personal comfort. You would think that it's almost necessary because... An intubated patient um, is in pain and uncomfortable with a tube down their throat. Um, their mental status is not intact. I've heard nurses say basically that it's inhumane to intubate someone and not sedate them. Like that that is a disservice to the patient. Yeah, where did it start? Because yeah. I've only seen... That's one of our main barriers is our culture, right? And our understanding. And so no one sedates people wanting to psychologically scar them. Yeah. Cause harm. Yeah. Or increase the rates of mortality and all the repercussions of sedation. Um, so there is, and there has been from the very beginning, this assumption that that is more humane. Um, I think nurses from the nursing side, sedation is given with the hope that it prevents PTSD, but research actually shows that PTSD is more rooted in the delirium that sedation causes. So essentially we are giving patients PTSD with sedation, but that's not the, that's not common knowledge. So how did this even start when this is the standard of practice? And it has been for decades back in the nineties um, is when we started really being able to keep patients with ARDS on ventilators alive. Um, ventilators, I don't know, back in the sixties or seventies were super archaic, right? They just they didn't have the sensors. They didn't, they couldn't adjust everything and customize it for the patient. Right. And so it was just pounding air in, pulling it out. So yes, it was extremely uncomfortable and um, there's no way that patients could synchronize with the ventilator. So they deeply sedated them. Then the ventilators evolved and got more sophisticated, more sensitive. um, And so they kept patients alive longer. And so ARDS became a new diagnosis and we were treating it. And we started getting really excited about paralytics and benzodiazepines because it made them um, synchronize the ventilator better. You know, you could just knock them out and it was that assumption started that it was more comfortable and that it would improve their survival. Right. Um, and it was about that time that Polly Bailey, who was one of my colleagues, she's now a nurse practitioner, but she was a nurse at that time in a shock trauma ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah. And she had a patient that she followed out. They had primary nurses at the time. Like they would take care of the ICU and they would kind of follow them throughout their hospitalization. And back then they didn't have rehabilitation. So they would just literally scoop them up off of the stretcher and then dump them into their cars and say, good luck. And so this one patient, she was a mom in her thirties, 
was from uh, Polly's hometown. So Polly had a vested interest in her and followed her home, watched her at home, watched her spend a year trying to make it up the stairs, watched her husband use the bedpan with her and talk to her about her um, delirium, her hallucinations, the trauma from that. And then the cognitive deficits, she couldn't read a clock. She couldn't write, use her checkbook. Um, so she was watching this and just was horrified. So she went back to her medical director, who's Terry Klemmer. Um, he was one of the founding physicians of critical care. He's in my episode two. Um, and she said, we're breaking people. We cannot do this. What are we keeping people alive for if we're just going to ruin their lives? And so she had the inspiration to wake, wake people up and move them on the ventilators. And he was really doubtful because no one was doing that. There was no research validating that like there is now. Um, but he believed in nurses. He trusted the nursing instincts and knew that Polly would keep her patients safe. So he said... So it was a nursing initiative. Yep. Wow. Yep. Wow. Okay. That's it. Bold, very, right? Yeah, very bold. Yes. Especially and, in an and ICU. I love that, <laughs> yep. And she, but she had to have physician support. And Dr. Clemmer was like, I don't know. Go for wow. it. Give it Give it a try. Let's see. And it worked. Patients were staying strong. They were safe to, to move on the ventilator. And they were seeing all these... I mean, it was a lot because... Initially, patients were already sedated, and then you turn off sedation, you have to clear out the delirium. And this is before a lot of the research on delirium. But Polly was just noticing that, okay, it takes like days to maybe a week for this delirium to clear out, and then they're they're human again, and they can move, they can walk, and then they don't, the quality of life is better. So she started playing around with this, but it was a big hurdle because you have these very well-seasoned stock trauma nurses that are like, H, no, I'm here to sedate. And they thought it was unsafe and humane, all the things, right? So it was a big obstacle to standardize that until they started a respiratory ICU. And so um, they didn't hire seasoned nurses for this new ICU. They took nurses from rehabilitation, from nursing homes who were okay with walking patients, like were comfortable with moving them and also didn't have any ICU background. And they just taught them the critical care stuff and then started this new culture. And that's what that is now what the Awaken Walking ICU is. And so I started there as a brand new nurse. I had no critical care experience. They still hire nurses like that because we come in with fresh perspectives. We're not going to be freaked out by it. We have travel nurses coming in, you know, during COVID and they're, they're pretty wigged at first, right. but then it takes two seconds to realize the patient's using the call light, the patient's writing on the board. Um, they're making their needs known. They're, they're totally fine walking for the most part. Um, and they're getting better than walking out of the ICU. Why wouldn't you want that? So now our, these travel nurses leave the wake and walking ICU really conflicted, knowing that they did harm before, they know how to do it right, and now they're going somewhere else where they're going to be those cultural barriers again. Mm-hmm. Have there been other hospitals who've followed suit, or are you still the one of the only ones that do this? Um, I think there's a spectrum of compliance with this approach. So we're probably one of the only ICUs in the world that does it to this extreme as far as hardly anyone gets sedated upon intubation. Rare extremes like seizures, open abdomen. Um, like you do the intubation the, with no sedation. No, we intubate. So we do induction. Okay. Sedation. Okay. So sedation is awesome for procedures, right? For surgery, it's different to be sedated for half an hour, a couple of hours compared to a few days. So we talked to them beforehand, you know, if it's, if it's a kind of a control situation, you know, when you're like, Hey, things are getting worse. You need a ventilator. Here's, it's going to be uncomfortable when you wake up, but hang with us. So then we sedate them, intubate them, and then we let them wake up. And at first it's like, Whoa, where am I? You know, that quick confusion, just like if you wake up from surgery. So we have them restrained and we say, Hey, remember, and you talk them through it. Remember what we talked about 20 minutes ago? Here we are now. This is a tube. It is uncomfortable. But as far as comfort, it is totally different when a patient can cope, when they understand what's going on, when they have their coping mechanisms intact compared to if they're delirious and agitated and terrified because they think that they're in enemy territory about to get their brains blown out, right? It's different. So after like 30 minutes, maybe an hour, they're pretty calm. And a lot of people can be unrestrained after a while. So as far as compliance, who does that? Right. Um, I think we're probably one of the only places that doesn't sedate them hardly ever, and especially not right away. Um, I think the A to F bundle is becoming a very popular protocol, which is great. It helps um, helps you wean back sedation. 
but it still carries the assumption that most patients are going to be sedated right away. And I think that's a little bit more difficult because you start delirium and then you try to wean back sedation and you're unleashing the beast. And that is so much work. We all know how much work delirious patients are. You have delirious patients on the floor and the ED, right? It's, it, it's unsafe. When we talk about events like self-extubation, line removals, that's not happening with sane cooperative patients. That's happening with patients that are delirious, right? So it's, it's a safety risk. So when you start sedation and then try to pull it back, you're, you're going to have a rodeo. Um, so I think everyone, I think this knowledge, all this research, because this research has been going on for over a decade as far as showing the harm that sedation causes. But as far as units actually putting it into action, it's, it's an evolution and every place is different. So within one city, the awake and walk in ICU has this, this specific extreme down the, a couple blocks down another ICU. You're not going to even open your eyes on a ventilator. A couple of miles to the East, you're going to eventually maybe wake up after a few days and, um, probably never walk a couple of miles to the West. You, um, can walk on ECMO in that hospital, but down the hall, you're not even going to get a sedation vacation on a ventilator. So it is deeply cultural and it, so it, it fluctuates by each unit, but I think there is a movement to change. I think people just don't know how, because they don't know their why. Wow. How about, um, how about when it comes to issues like feeding the patient um, and things like that? Um, and what do the patients usually report to you in terms of their, um, what's in their minds? I know you said they're, they're not as fearful as you would mm-hmm. think. Um, but tell me a little bit about that. I, I mean, they, I'm guessing they still have like NG tubes. They still have A lines. Mm-hmm. They still have all the things that yep. they, they need, but they're just awake writing on a whiteboard? I mean, I, I know this sounds like basic <laughs> questions, but I'll be honest with you. It, it's shocking. I mean, I'm no, an ICU I, nurse and we don't, yeah. we don't do that. We don't. Yeah, I know. But even having an NG tube or an OG tube, you'd be so uncomfortable. I yeah. Feel. Well, we do MFTs or like a nasal jejunal tube. So those are smaller, finer. And so really we do that almost right after they're intubated because we want to start feeds right away. So the whole objective is to improve long-term outcomes, right? We're not just trying to perfuse organs. We're not just treating the shock in the moment where we're looking at them and saying, okay, here's where they're at now. Where do we want them to be in a few weeks? So nutrition is top on that list. If we want them to wean off the ventilator, we have to preserve their muscle mass. So we have to keep them active, moving, but also nourished. So we're going to do an MFT right away. And that also allows us to do things like low-dose clonopin if they are anxious, um, but we don't have to make them comatose. The, uh, our rascal should be zero. So if they are like a two, if they are waking out, we can do low dose clonopin and see if that helps and titrate. So um, an, uh, a nasal jejunal tube is really important for that process. Um, what was the other question? What, what's on their mind? Um, probably everything um, as if, I mean, cause they're fully awake. They're not delirious. So they're, they want to know, um, where's my cell phone? Can, um, can you suction my tube out? Um, like where's my lotion, my chapstick? Um, they're saying, I want to call, they're texting on their phones. They're tele- texting us on their phones. They're texting their family members. They're and pre and hopefully post COVID family members are right there in the room and that helps them stay calm, reassured. They can ask questions like how, how are my labs today? How long am I going to be on the ventilator? Um, I think I would be so anxious if I have, if I felt like I had no control over the situation and couldn't be informed. So I think that them being able to communicate, have their questions answered, and then being able to do things for themselves, the chaps that go on, suction their own mouths. Um, they use like exercise bands in the bed, getting up and walking, just them knowing that they're actively participating in their recovery brings them so much more peace. Um, when it comes to like death experiences, they get to say goodbye. They get to have it on their terms. They get to choose. So you don't have patients that are completely delirious or comatose, not being able to make their own choices. And the family has to, to live with that decision forever. They get to choose from themselves. So very often patients are like, I get it. This is the end. I'm done. Um, and they get to, like, I had a patient that had a very advanced cancer diagnosis that he wasn't aware of until he was intubated. And um, he had like a day to live, 
but he wouldn't let them extubate him until he had signed his own pension paperwork and knew that his wife was taken care of. And then he got to say goodbye and have it done. So, so many times he is, people are saying goodbye to their family members. Like, why wouldn't you want that? Um, so everything's on their mind and they can express what's on their mind. I guess that's the point. So, I mean, we're talking about patients that are able to tolerate this and, and patients that are having really great outcomes. And, um, I think that that's amazing, but there has to be some patients that don't tolerate it, right? People who, you know, that for whatever reason, their diagnosis doesn't allow them to be calm and comfortable, even with clonopin or even, you know, what do you do then? Do you sedate some, do you have to sedate some people? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's kind of rooted in our understanding of delirium. So when you don't sedate patients, you prevent a lot of delirium, but sedation isn't the only risk factor for delirium. Sepsis is a risk factor. Sleeplessness is a risk factor, right? Just being in the hospital for a long time. So you still can have delirious patients and there are different kinds of delirium. So there's hypoactive and hyperactive. So I think what you're asking about is what about the hyperactive delirium? Um, How do you deal with that? And, um, it's rare that we have to sedate people. So I think part of the, there's no like medication you can give for delirium. We try antipsychotics, they don't necessarily work, right? Mobility is one of the best things for delirium. So if someone is anxious, trying to climb out of bed, just jumping out of their skin, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, you get them up and walk them. You wear them out. And what if they what if they can't walk? Like let's say, for example, so many of these patients last year, we had these maybe not elderly, but uh older COVID patients. Uh they were encephalopathic, then they're ripping mm-hmm. off the BiPAP every minute, you know, and then eventually yeah. we had to intubate them and sedate them. These are patients that are not they're a safety risk, they're a big fall right. risk, and they they can't even understand. I can't even explain to them, let's get up and walk, you know, I mean, what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. And, and delirium can really impact your ability to walk because it like disrupts, it's a brain injury. Mm -hmm. So your brain can be so altered that you can't even put one foot in front of the other, no matter how strong you still are. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you're talking about geriatric patients, which I think are even more important to mobilize. Mm -hmm. They're at even higher risk of deconditioning to the point of not being able to wean off the ventilator. Mm -hmm. So the wake and walk and ICU had a COVID unit, still has it. One patient, I think, in this whole time has been trait because they, we maintain that muscle. So um, walking definitely maintains that diaphragm strength. So I think it's even more important to keep these frail patients up so that you don't create a fall risk. So even when they're delirious, if they're, if they're not able to safely walk, even sitting on the side of the bed, even them engaging their core muscles, holding their head up, changing position. Sometimes that agitation and that discomfort is from the bed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had a baby yet, but when, I'm, when I've had my babies, I want to get out of that bed because it is not comfortable. Mm-hmm. But when you've got them stuck in the same position, even turning but the same bed for days, it doesn't feel good. So even sitting up, allowing their skin to breathe, allowing them to breathe better. Sometimes it's the agitations from not being able to breathe. If you have really dysfunctional lungs and you're in the worst position to breathe, which is reclined, mm-hmm. you're going to get panicked that's, and agitated. That's my pet peeve actually with respiratory patients. When I come in and like somebody will say, Oh, the patient's not breathing very well. And they're like, the, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. sit them yeah, up. So How about that? Let's, can we try that first? <laughs> yeah. When you're, when you're coughing or you feel short of breath, you're not going to be like, I'm just going to lay s- straight flat down. Yeah. And <laughs> no, you're like instinctively, you're going to sit up, right? Yeah. Because then your diaphragm can drop, drop against gravity. Your lungs can expand. You can mobilize those secretions, right? But we throw all that logic out the window when someone's on a ventilator, mm-hmm. when it should be even more important. So someone's frail, they're delirious. It's going to be some more beneficial for their long-term outcomes as far as strength and mobility to be up whatever they can tolerate. So if it's sit inside of the bed, we're going to dangle them for 15 minutes. If they can't even sit themselves up, then we're going to hold them. And it's, it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I mean, it, as long as and they, they're even like holding their own head up, that's, that's going to be a step forward. And you can watch like, if they're like batch is crazy, right? Right. They have no idea where they're at. You watch the light start to come on while they're mobilizing, while they're up, whether it's sitting, standing, 
Um, I got to do an interview with a patient that she was crazy. She was completely delirious, super deconditioned, really dangerous. She woke up walking. And when I say walking, she was like 80 pounds. So they were like carrying her with her gait belt, essentially, mm-hmm. just trying to get her moving because her ventilator settings were going up. And she woke up while walking. That's when she realized where she was and what was going on. Mm-hmm. So that is the best treatment for delirium. So when we sedate people and you know, make them a negative too, we're signing them up for a lot longer and deeper delirium and all the sequelae that follow from being immobilized and their lungs are going to get worse and they're not going to be able to get off the ventilator. They're going to go into an LTAC and they're more at risk of dying. I mean, it's, so it's, it's in that moment, we just have to have the big picture. So we have to keep them safe, keep them oxygenated, keep them perfused, but also ask ourselves, what, what am I doing during my shift? And what's that, what impact is that going to have the next shift and days and weeks to come? So when they are super dangerous, you know, you get these like weightlifters having alcohol withdrawal, right? Mm-hmm. You have to get them benzos for alcohol withdrawal, right? But if they have delirium from other causes, you have to look at what's causing the delirium. Is it because they're not sleeping? Is it because of the drugs that you just have to try to break down what reversible factors are causing the delirium? But if, essentially, if they're not safe and if your staff isn't safe, then we go to the rare cases of using presidics. Mm-hmm. But again, with the rascal of zero, mm-hmm. we're not looking to have them not move a muscle, which I hear from nurses. I like these medications. I like Versed because I don't want to move in a muscle. But mm-hmm. the point is so that they can still uh, interact with their environment, but they're not jumping out of their skin. Mm-hmm. And they can still mobilize and cooperate with therapies so that we can work through the delirium and not exacerbate it. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, of course. I actually want to go back to what you originally were talking about, how this was a nursing initiative at first, and a doctor agreed to implement this idea. I think it's perfect for this show. Yes. Yeah, it is. Being an RNMD podcast. Yeah. I just wanted to put that out there. I like, I like yeah. that you picked that up, <laughs> right actually. Right I, th- I was thinking something similar. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I had thought about that, too, because I, I'm doing webinars with teams, and I hear... So if I'm talking to a group of nurses, they're like, well, how do you get doctors to buy in? And if I'm talking to physicians and I I try to get everyone in the room together, but sometimes there are more of others, right? Or sometimes they ask questions, even when the other team's present. Well, how do you get nurses to do it? Mm -hmm. And like, y'all need to get together and talk about this because everyone should have the same goal. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, this is... uh I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, this is, I mean, this was initially a nursing initiative. And I do think that nurses have a lot of power in this. Like one, one doctor that came to our unit, he was used to, you know, normal practices. So one of his first times intubating a patient on the unit, he turned to the nurse and said, Hey, what do you want for station? Just habitually. Right. And she looked at him like she was crazy. And she's like, never say that again. So nurses have the power to change the culture. And I think physicians feel like they couldn't, that they would have so much opposition from nurses if they tried to take away their precious sedation. Right. Because in the end, when you have a delirious batch, it's crazy patient, it is a nurse having to wrangle the patient. So that was actually going to be my point that I, how do you, okay, I I have specific questions about this because that every unit is short staffed, right? Especially the ICU. So what are your ratios? Like, how do you staff for this? How do you prepare? Because you're saying, you have somebody who's um, wanting their cell phone. They want to know their labs. They want, and that's all wonderful for the patient. But that's a lot of time and effort for a nurse that's probably already swamped. Um, so I know it sounds like a lot of work because when we wean off sedation, usually we hear or we see this crazy delirium. Right? They're just agitated and losing their minds. So when I talk about not using sedation hardly ever, nurses that come from these you know, normal units, imagine patients are always jumping onto the wall and losing their minds. Right. But that's really not how it is. For the most part, they really are cooperative and they protect their own tubes. Like, um, I had a COVID patient and I heard her vent alarming and I looked in the window and she was holding her tube and her tubing. And I, you know, you panic, you never do want to see that. Um, but she'd been completely with it and unrestrained even because she was so so with it. So we rush in there and she's like, no, I coughed and the tube came to disconnect and I was holding it together. But, um, so there's just a difference in workload when you have a patient that is 
calm and cooperative. And your chances of that drastically increase when you don't make them crazy. Now, if you start sedation for a week and then try to turn it off, you've got a big obstacle ahead of you and it's a lot of work. But for staffing ratios, the wake and walking ICU does really well with just two patients to one nurse, which is the way it should be. So that is a huge factor in keeping patients safe. But as far as being able to like communicate with them and talk with them, I mean, you're talking to patients as you're giving them meds, as you're doing dressing changes, like you're just talking to them like you would any other patient. Um, it's not like you have to set apart a special hour to go in. Like this is the hour in which I'm going to communicate with them. It's just while you're doing your normal stuff and maybe there's a little bit more work, but yet it's a lot less work than a delirious patient and mobilizing them doesn't take nearly as many people when we mobilize them shortly after intubation. So they don't, it's not like they're, they've taken two weeks off of ever holding their own head up. And then you're, you've got like this big newborn adult that you have to move and it takes lifts and five people. And it's this huge fall risk. The difference is we mobilize them shortly after intubation and we keep them walking three times a day, sitting up in the chair, um, even with high increased ventilator settings. So they don't stop walking. You don't have to start it back up again. The only times they really stop walking is, is if, like for delirium, if they really can't put one foot in for the other, or if they have to be paralyzed. And I think our paralytic threshold is a little bit different. I mean, we walk people in peeps of 18, 20, 100%. As long as they oxygenate with movement, we're rolling and doing whatever they can tolerate. So what, what about your COVID patients? Did you paralyze them? Um, yes. Um, it, so, it, But with the same thresholds. So what they're doing right now um, so if they can't oxygenate with movement, then we prone and paralyze them. If they benefit from being prone, if like their ventilator settings are increasing, then we'll do awake or light sedation for proning for 16 hours. And then if they can be supine and moving, then great. We're going to get them back up, mobilize them for those eight hours off, and then prone them again. And so, you know, you have patients texting on their cell phones while they're proned because we didn't just sedate them the second they were intubated and then delirious, and then try to pull off sedation. Like we just let them choose for themselves and be with it. And then they're safer to be prone without the deep sedation. And then they don't need paralytics unless, unless they're actually not um, oxygenated with movement or like dyssynchrony is a huge problem. You'll hear um, on the podcast, one of our first COVID patients when they were intubated really prematurely, right? After six liters, he spent six days awake and walking in his room on his ventilator and totally with it. And then as he hit the cytokine storm, he got worse and he had to be, he was like lightly sedated slash awake prone for a few days and then paralyzed for another six days. Um, and once he could tolerate being supine, they had him awake and he was crazy. He was really delirious, but they were mobilizing him. And four days after being able to be supine, he was extubated, went home straight home 10 days later. Mm -hmm. He was 69 for his 70th birthday. He was out golfing. Wow. That was six weeks after discharge. That's amazing. That's amazing. I think that was posted on, on uh, Instagram, right? Was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you saw it. I saw it. We yeah. were looking yeah. at your Instagram before this. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's kind of her, her wits. I can't remember what episode he's on, but um, but yeah, yeah. He's got all of his information. There are pictures and even videos of him moving. Um, someone grabbed his phone while they were in the room and recorded for him and for his wife since she couldn't be there. Um, and so he sent those to me later and he's like, yeah, use them. So he's kind of a classic COVID case. Of course, we have deaths, but I don't think hardly anyone is discharged to an LTAC. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So outcomes seem to be equal, if not better, than... Oh, oh, definitely better. Yeah. So COVID's a special situation, which you can compare with the same diagnoses, right, across the board. And this is a multi-hospital system. So there's a dashboard that kind of tells each hospital and certain markers, like... Um, how many patients are on ventilators, how many, like how long they're hospitalized for, they're discharged, things like that. So last time I checked, the wake and walk in ICU compared to the other COVID units, the top hot COVID units, you know, there are only a few hospitals that are taking the high acuities. This is one of them. The um, length of stay in the ICU was six days shorter than all wow, the other ICUs. That's a lot. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just no denying that the outcomes, safety is. There's, they're safer because you're not making delirious. You don't have all the, the risks of all the line removals. They're less of a fall risk because they stay strong. They're less likely to die because they're not atrophying. And, and you'll have to listen to some of the recent episodes. We just talked about um, 
how mus- muscular atrophy is like putting fuel on the fire when it comes to inflammation. So when you've got COVID, this inflammatory process, and you're like leaving them to rot and they're atrophying, then you're worsening their chances of having multi-organ failure. Yeah. And as somebody who I, you know, I had a foot injury recently, I haven't used my right leg in about 12 Mm -hmm. weeks. My calf is one third the size of the other one in 12 weeks. And I'm a healthy person who was running and biking before that. And I just started trying to strengthen through PT, doing my calf exercises. I just started that yesterday. My calf is dying. It's, it's, it's so difficult to get back. It's very, very difficult. And I can't, and even Dan made this comment. Imagine if you were older, imagine if you had comorbidities. I mean, it, it could be a life threatening (laughs) injury. You're well nourished. So we get patients that are sitting on high flow for weeks and they, they're, they don't have a feeding tube. They're breathing at 40 times a minute. Um, and they're not really getting adequate nutrition and then they get intubated after that. And then we might put a feeding tube in then, um, but you've already lost so much muscle. You've had this hypermetabolic state, um, an inflammatory process. You've been sitting there. I mean, there are some units that don't let people in high flow get up. So you've already been at bed rest and then you're immobilized. Um, how do you ever recover? And that's the question, like these patients physically, don't really return to their baseline functional physical status, right? Psychologically, that post-ICU PTSD is real. That delirium, like one guy said every time for a year, every time he closed his eyes, those images, those hallucinations and terrors that he experienced in the ICU in delirium come right back to him. So he ended up divorced because he was just such a psychological mess. Um, And then cognitive deficits, I think, are another really important consideration there's a new diagnosis coming out of post-ICU dementia. They aren't, I mean, this is a brain injury. Sedation causes delirium and delirium is a brain injury or it's a manifestation of a brain injury. Um, they look different on CT scans. So um, the brain function is different after the ICU, after having delirium. So I think if we understood that, it would change our discussion in the moment, right? And when we understood that how that patients really can be trustworthy so much easier to handle if we don't cause delirium, then we're a lot more willing to discuss changing our sedation practices. How does this play a part in the patient's hemodynamics? You know, you always yeah. kind of assume that a patient who's not sedated is, is you know, more tachycardic. Um, and if anything, it improves it. So less, so, less like tachycardia, less shifts in, in their blood pressure and things like that? I, I would think so. So we know propofol causes hypotension. So you have someone in shock and septic shock, they get intubated for it. And then you give propofol as you're giving vasopressors, like how much sense does that make? Right. Or we, or we, um, you know, even without the element of shock, someone might be like borderline and you give propofol and they go hypotensive. Then you're giving a vasopressor for the propofol. And for me, it hurts my head. Like I, I was hearing a case study in, when I was in grad school of a patient with pneumonia, didn't, wasn't in septic shock, um, but got propofol because they were intubated and then got vasopressors on top of it. And I looked around at my colleagues and I was expecting like my classmates to be looking like what the heck with me. No, they just were nodding their heads. Yeah. That's, that's and the I, like, norm. I mean, it really is. <laughs> it's the, the norm. Yeah. I felt like I was a crazy person and I sounded like a crazy person. I threw my hands on the desk and I said, why are we giving propofol? Like, why are we giving a vasopressor for an unnecessary medication. And people looked at me like I was crazy. Like, did you not catch the part where they were intubated? So one of my classmates thought I was especially delirious myself and just delusional. And then he did his residency in the wake and walk in ICU. He now works there. And he, we just laugh about that all the time because he thought I was ridiculous, but now he's part of the team. (laughs) Um, But if someone's in shock, right. And um, again, avoiding, um, medications that cause hypotension is nothing but helpful, but mobilizing improves hemodynamics most of the time. So a lot of times we can go down on vasopressors after they've mobilized. But if you're like actively pouring fluid into someone with pressure bags and increasing their vasopressors, it's not a good time to get up and and frolic, right? So it's part of the assessment. We're not just going to throw someone out that's on two vasopressors out of bed. They're going to sit up and they can tell us, right? Because they're not delirious. 
They can tell us if they're lightheaded, short of breath. They can tell us if they're, you know, symptomatic stand up and we have them on monitors. We can monitor them. We have a wheelchair behind them. If they get fatigued, if they do get lightheaded, then we can sit them down. We can watch their um, heart rate. So um, it's, it's a, it is a process. It's a skill set monitoring and assessing them as we're going. But in the end, it improves um, their, their circulation. So they, in the end, diuresis better. Um, it, it just improves the hemodynamics in a lot of ways. But to your point, if they're actively in serious septic shock and we're pouring fluid in and um, we can't keep up, then we're not going to not going to ambulate them. Yeah. The thing is that we can customize this care. When we don't automatically state patients, then we can individualize, personalize, and optimize the patient care according to what they need in that moment. And then that can change in a couple of hours and we're going to reassess then. Mm -hmm. I I understand though, why you might receive pushback from uh, an ICU that's done it a certain way for a long time to change Mm -hmm. to this. This, it sounds like a lot of work the way, I mean, it really, it does. It sounds like a lot, a lot of extra care for the patient, which again, the patient is always the center of this, right? But if we're talking about staffing issues, we're talking about resources, we're talking about a hospital system that might need to pay extra for mm-hmm. people to walk their patient up and down the hallway to have somebody with that wheelchair to reassess these patients. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it is more, right? Um, I think initially, I mean, it sounds like a lot more, um, in the end, this process of care saves money. Mm-hmm. Um, repeatedly, research has shown that the less sedation and mobility a patient receives, the less hospital costs they acquire. Mm-hmm. And so um, it will ultimately save money. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking avoiding tracheostomies, um, avoiding weeks to months of rehabilitation needs. We're talking about getting out of the ICU and the mm-hmm. hospital sooner. So in the end, it saves money. Mm-hmm. So maybe you need to hire another tech to push a wheelchair. But if we incorporate the ADF bundle approach, then you're utilizing family as well. Family Mm -hmm. members can push an IV pull. They can hold a chest tube. They can um, push a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and they're happy to. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and again, it doesn't take as many people when you've kept patients strong. I mean, it might take physical therapists, a nurse and a respiratory therapist. And it's, but it's so deeply cultural. So the team's timing out in the morning, they're like, okay, Room 33 has got an MRI. So-and-so has got a thoracentesis. You know, they're coordinating who's going to walk when. A lot of times patients are already wanting to sit up in the chair when they wake up. And a lot of times they're standby assist. So the nurse just has to kind of hold their tubing while they sit themselves in the chair. And the phys- and they're ready for physical therapy. They're asking, when are they coming? The physical therapist in this ICU, it's a 13-bed ICU, but they still work the floor. But the ICU is a priority. They come by, but people are ready. They're jumping in. It's just innate. So I think a cultural shift is hard and a lot of work at first, but it ultimately is cheaper and ultimately should be just as much, if not less work when you're not having to fight delirium or big flaccid bodies or going into further multi-organ failure or having further, you know, battery repercussions when it changes their mortality and their trajectory, yeah. it should be easier. It's just a cascade. It turns into a cascade of problems. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting. Very, yeah, I didn't very. know anything about this. I mean, I'm so grateful to you to share this with us. I mean, we had no idea. This is certainly not how our ICU experience has operated. <laughs> We're more the opposite, yeah. I would say. Yeah. The more sedation, yeah, the better. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that comes from just lack of knowledge, but which I think is silly. And I mean, not, not to say you guys are ignorant, but just it's silly that our culture, our ICU culture is not talking about this because there is so much research. You go on my blog and I've kind of made it my own, um, my own, uh, citation board. Like I, it's my literature review and I, there's so, and I've only put like a a small portion of what's out there. You put in, into your PubMed, um, ICU mobility, ICU, um, post-ICU PTSD. I mean, there's just so much, but we don't talk about it. Would you mind um, sharing some of the more like introductory research uh, with me? And then I'm going to link it to this episode. So if anybody's listening and they're interested in in doing this, maybe send me a couple of links that someone could read the research. Yeah, absolutely. And I can provide a link to my blog and that has definitely yeah. More than anyone would probably have time for, but <laughs> I think it's fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also I'm doing webinars. You know, it's um it's easier to have I think a third party come in and say, kind of give this big picture than have your own colleague 
say you got to change this. You know, if right. I think doctors are afraid to say this to nurses because it sounds like a lot of work. Right. right? And if right. no one's ever done it before, then they're like, it's the blind leading the blind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're crazy. Like if someone came in and told a 30 year old, 30 year ICU veteran, like, okay, we're going to start walking these patients. I mean, they would be like, get out of here. You're crazy. No, absolutely. And that's, that repeatedly happens. I mean, even people that come in to the ICU, they're like, they come, they come running out of the rooms. Like you didn't tell me they weren't sedated. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> we didn't think that was notable. Sorry. <laughs> like yeah. we just, um, what it really sounds to me like is the reason why things aren't changing or heading to that direction is because convenience for the practitioners in yes. question, the nurses, the doctors, Yes. in addition to customary the way we've always we're done custom- it. Yeah. This is what we're used to. We're not going to change it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm not going to say laziness, but like a willingness to, uh, yeah, exactly. You it's know, like, not change basically, you know, yeah. yeah. You just choose. Change is hard, but I think fear is also mixed in with that. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Cause I mean, you're saying like, well, how do you not sedate patients and how do you keep them safe? I mean, there's fear of having all your patients be yes. climbing out of bed and trying to pull their teeth yes, out. Yes, that's a big fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and legitimately, right? Like, yeah. you're, it, that's a lot of liability. But it really isn't like that. Mm-hmm. If we don't start sedation, then we don't start delirium. Mm-hmm. It's it's just like, I, I, we just have to change the perspective, right? Like, if we see sedation as this humane, comfort, warm blanket kind of medication, then why would we ever change it? But mm-hmm. if we saw it for what it was, it's like, here, I'm going to like send you back to your worst trauma in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Have fun. Mm-hmm. If we saw it as liquid PTSD, if we saw it as entering their brain, like if someone's got a kidney injury, we're all like fixated on not giving them contrast. Mm-hmm. But if someone already has delirium, if they're in septic shock and they already are encephalopathic, why would we give them something that's neurotoxic? Mm-hmm. Like what sense does that make? But we don't phrase it that way. So I think physicians can be really powerful in gaining that perspective and teaching it and doing a lot of the communication and then nurses also can do a lot of advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I think it just comes from our, our knowledge or perspective and, and then seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. So one team that I worked with on the East coast, um, they started getting their patients up and it's like caught like wildfire. They, they saw this guy that was 450 pounds, I think COVID patient intubated. Um, and then they either like had him on Presidix for a little bit and they're like, let's try that thing. And so they turned off the Presidix, got him up right away and they were had like, I don't know, nine people in the room and they were really scared at first because no one wants a 450 pound patient on the floor. Mm-hmm. But he popped right up because he hadn't spent days in bed. And then he was playing tic-tac-toe on the window and dancing on the ventilator. And they were seeing that and everyone's, you know, gathering around the windows watching it and their perspective started to change. And he discharged the floor and went straight home and they'd never seen a patient do that with their COVID wow. patients. Wow. That's great. And, they, and then, then it started to change. Like if a 450 pound patient can do that right. and Imagine. be safe, then... Yeah. Yeah. How how much different were his outcomes because of changing sedation practices? Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had patients. I'm sure you have too. When I'm weaning them off of sedation, who are alert and oriented, you know, younger patients usually. But I have I have had that experience, and I tell them, you know, especially because I I usually work night shift. So you know, we start weaning them off overnight, and then the team in the morning plans to come in and extubate. And so before I leave at 7 a.m., a lot of times these patients, I'm able to say, you're intubated. They're going to take the tube out today. And they nod. They understand. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable? They'll nod. You know, I mean, we've had some some patients like that. We've actually had patients um, who were not fully sedated. Mm -hmm. And that's how they want it to be. And they had Mm -hmm. their eyes open. Mm -hmm. I would say like a RAS score of maybe zero to one or something. They had some sedation, but they were able to communicate. Yeah. And um, I, I definitely think that that patient was better off. Yeah. It, you know? it seemed Absolutely. more yeah. calm to me. It yeah. actually did yeah, yeah. seem They're just more sitting calm. there comfortably. They're yeah. watching television, Seinfeld, whatever's on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe they're binging Netflix. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no. I don't know if you're a Hulu who person. Or, yeah. or <laughs> who wouldn't want to do that, you said? Or? Yeah. Yeah, who wouldn't want to do that? Like, yeah. when you understand the alternative. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, I remember one patient I had in particular that had, that did that, uh, and, and I explained it to him, and he was nodding, and, I remember being sort of confused when I asked him, like, do you need anything? And I was, I was afraid to ask that question to him. Like, do you need anything? You know? And he said, no, he just shook his head. No. And I'm like looking at him like, what do you mean? No. Like, 
<laughs> what do you mean? That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. But he got. So, he, yeah, you say like, it, he I got think worried about it being a lot of work. And I think, you know, we joke about being in the ICU because we don't like call lights because we don't want call lights exactly. going on. Exactly. I mean, that's a cultural thing in the ICU, right? You don't. Right. I mean, some nurses joke that they don't like talking patients, right? Right. But Kenneth Hurwitz, this COVID patient I mentioned, um, it was with him that I started doing the thing where I made a Google number that connected to a computer out at the nursing desk. He could text from his phone to that number and say, because he was very particular. He's like, I want albuterol Mm -hmm. or the pump is going off. It needs more. um, I need more saline. You know, he'll. Mm -hmm. So then nurses could go in knowing what they needed beforehand Mm -hmm. and not have to come out and like gown or yell back to whoever. So in the end, theoretically, it was less. Yeah, it was more efficient. So. Um, most patients really aren't that needy mm-hmm. when their needs are met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and let's be honest, it's our job to meet their needs. Right. So yeah. that, that culture of like, just kind of shut them up is, is not acceptable or appropriate. Yeah. And it really doesn't treat things like pain and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean, we sedate people. We're just because we don't see the anxiety anymore. doesn't mean that they're not anxious. We're, we're, I mean, considering what they are likely experiencing, we're provoking the anxiety. If their anxiety was rooted in not knowing where they are, being worried about their family members, you know, we're taking away the opportunity to assuage those anxieties. Um, we take away the opportunity to treat pain. We either over-treat it or under-treat it. They can't tell us if they're in pain, if they're sedated. Whereas if they're not sedated, then we can ask and we can see what kind of pain is it? Where is it working? And that can be a huge sign of something else going on, right? Um, how do you know if someone's had a stroke if they're sedated? So I think we could do a much better assessment overall if a patient is involved in their care and that's assessment. True. I, I agree with that. That's that's a good point, actually. Yeah. I think you you convinced us. Yeah, we're on board now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, with this information comes great responsibility. It's hard because I've I've had people say I I kind of had to turn your podcast off because it was hard for me to go to work and have everyone shut me down. Um, and so that's where I think these webinars are helpful. Where it's like get everyone in the room. I had someone invite me to, uh, to like a grand rounds this summer. And I said, that's great. I'm happy to talk to physicians. And they were like, oh, and med students can come. And I said, that's exciting. But I don't really want to do it unless everyone's there. It's not going to be fully productive if we don't have physical therapists, occupational therapists, nutritionists, speech therapists, nurses, yeah. respiratory therapists. And then in physicians. So everyone's got to be on board. I mean, yeah. Welcome to the reason for our podcast. I mean, we, we don't have meetings together. We don't share information together as a group. Um, If a physician, like I said, came in and tried to make these changes, there would definitely be pushback on nursing because no one would ever sit down with nursing and say, look, here's the research here. You know, uh, why wouldn't you want this for your patient? And that's why I did the podcast so that, um, because it's exhausting to try to explain each thing. I mean, this is a very complex approach in theory. I mean, changing it is complex. The approach itself is not, but this way we can have survivors speak for themselves. I think, um, the research is important and exciting and convincing, but survivors are especially compelling. Once you have survivors and here, like an episode four, it's a, just a clip of people talking about their delirium. And I didn't say talk about your delirium. I said, what did you experience in your medically induced coma? Leave a message. I didn't give any prompts, but that's all they talked about was the horrific hallucinations and the PTSD that they suffer. Once you hear that, you don't look at a sedated patient the same ever again. If they're sedated for, you know, when patients have to be sedated under paralytics, we're all really uncomfortable. We're just dreading how they're going to be when they wake up, but especially what they're suffering under sedation. Um, and then you just consider things differently. You know, you always look at like a patient's history, um, history of um, renal dysfunction, right? So then you change the way you dose medications, right? If they have a history of PTSD, you are especially eager not to use sedation because you know that you're going to throw them right back into whatever trauma caused that PTSD and you're going to make it worse. So it just, that should be part of our discussion. If we're seeing people as human, we're going to try to preserve the things that make them human. Great point. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is wonderful and really educational. I really appreciate it. Well, no, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Apparently that's all I ever want to do. So I'm obsessed. (laughs) I can definitely hear it through your your speaking about it. It's it's inspiring, honestly. It really is. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, good luck to you. I hope this... uh, 
I hope this spreads. I hope we're able to help that initiative. You know, it's a really important one. Absolutely. Even if you just take it back to your team, even if you wean sedation off quicker on a patient, like it's, it's been worth it. All right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Great. We'll be in contact. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for all you do. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.